Hello and welcome to the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. My guest for this episode is Lisa Fernandez, a permaculture practitioner and teacher from Portland, Maine, who is also involved with the Eat Local Foods Coalition. We begin by talking about the Eat Local Foods Coalition, which leads to a discussion of community-supported fisheries, CSF, a seafood analog for community-supported agriculture where consumers support fishing families directly. A question I pose about the sustainability of these systems leads us down the road of considering the impact that our land-based agriculture has on our ocean-based systems, the evolving nature of permaculture education, and the need for a mindset of abundance. Though the food system and abundance conversations exist across the gulf of this episode, the way they tie together resulted in the title. Eric Tonsmeyer mentioned Lisa in a previous episode, which led me to want to talk to her, and I'm thankful I did. Lisa comes through in a clear voice that articulates her connections to this material and her points concisely, as opposed to my own rambling meanderings. Make sure to check out the show notes or entry on the website. Lisa kindly provided numerous links for the resource section. If you like this interview or any other episode of the Permaculture Podcast, please consider making a donation. It's through the support of listeners that I'm able to keep this show going and reach out to such amazing guests. Find out more by visiting the permaculturepodcast.com and clicking on the support tab. While you're there, you'll find ways to connect with me on Facebook or Twitter. Liking or following the show spreads the word around to others. So does leaving a review on your favorite podcast site such as iTunes. Now then, may you enjoy this time with Lisa Fernandez as much as I did. Now on to the interview. Then, as I always like to begin these interviews, if you could give us a little bit of your background and bio, Lisa, and then we will get into the main topic. Sure, that sounds great. I am living here in the southern Maine area near Portland, Maine, and and working around the the northeast region. And I organize the Portland, Maine Permaculture Group, which has about 1,300 members, and I direct the nonprofit home of that permaculture group, which is called the Resilience Hub. And that exists to, you know, do a lot of resilience building and permaculture and relocalization programming in this area. And I also am working on converting my own property, which is about one third of an acre, three miles from downtown Portland, into a demonstration site for suburban permaculture. Everything from renewable energy, to edible landscapes and water features and animals in the landscape and the social elements of doing permaculture in, in the suburbs. So that's what I'm working on now. And ever so briefly, I would just say that I come to permaculture through a long and winding road, as many of us do, and I've been a student of it since the early 90s when I learned about it in Europe. And even though I was doing different things along the way to make a living, permaculture and growing food and renewable energy and a lot of the related issues have always been part of my life and uh, really got to start focusing on it in earnest starting in about 2005. So I've been really full-time on permaculture and related work going on eight years, which is really exciting. So that's my brief backstory at the moment. Who did you study permaculture with along the way? Gosh, my very first workshop was in Olympia, Washington. So beyond self-study, which I think a lot of us do, and that's a perfectly valid way to come at permaculture. My first workshop with a an instructor 
was in Olympia in 1993, 94, somewhere thereabouts. And the instructor was Larry Santoyo. And from then, I started doing a lot on my own and moving back to the Northeast, where I'm originally from, and began studying with Charles and Julia Yelton here in Maine. They've been sort of traveling the world, teaching and learning and implementing permaculture design, and ended up in Maine and uh, did a permaculture design course with them about seven years ago. They're in Australia at the moment, and they spend part of their time here in Maine. Since then, I've had the really good fortune to be in the Northeast region of the, of the U.S., where I've been able to, to learn from and be with people like Eric Tonsmeyer and Jonathan Bates and Dave Jackie and Ben Falk and Keith Morris and Mark Kravchuk and Lisa DiPiano and so many great experienced permaculture people along the way. It's a great peer network and, and professional network here that I continue to, to learn from. There are some times when I talk to people and they mention all of these names for their regional collective of permaculture practitioners that I feel kind of out in the weeds here in central Pennsylvania as we still continue to build our network and group of practitioners. Yeah, I think we're all still very much in the early days, you know, even though permaculture as a design methodology has not been around too long in, in the scheme of things. We're still very much in, in the early days of, of propagating this approach to the world. So I think a bunch of us, your listeners included, will probably be feeling like maybe they don't have a, an extensive network, but that's part of why we do what we do, and, and it can only grow from here. So that's the good news. And I'm thankful for everyone who I speak to and find out that, yes, these numbers are growing, these classes are filling up, and the word is getting out there. Mm-hmm. I agree. Where I wanted to take things today because of something that Eric had mentioned in our conversation about financial permaculture was he had mentioned that he was part of a saltwater fish CSA as an add-on to his regular uh, CSA share. And then he mentioned about you and the Eat Local Foods Coalition. Could you explain what that is and what you're trying to accomplish? Absolutely. The Eat Local Foods Coalition has been active here in the state of Maine for about 10 years, and it is a true coalition of about 30 to 40 different businesses, farms, fisheries businesses, agencies involved in food issues, nonprofit organizations or NGOs, as well as individuals. And sort of the the most basic tagline for what they're trying to do is to say that they're trying to put more main food on more main tables more often, essentially relocalize the food system and use food, farming, and fishing as a catalyst for relocalizing our economy and economic development that makes a lot more sense than some of the other types of economic development activities that might be going on in our state and in our region. Eat Local Foods Coalition has made a particular effort to ensure that sea-based food and fisheries are given equal time to the notion of, of land-based food and agriculture as being equal to a food system. We're fortunate here in New England to have a lot of coastline. Maine has more coastline than any other state except Alaska. And we have a tradition going back even prior to, to European settlement, if you will, of community-based fisheries as part of our food system, an intrinsic part of our food system. So 
Eat Local Foods Coalition has been trying to elevate the conversation. So even when people talk about, you know, food systems, they often forget that seafood and and the health of oceans is is part of a healthy food system. So that's the high level piece around marrying farming and fishing together in a unified food system. So then you're trying to raise awareness among consumers about the impact that their food choices have not only on land-based food systems, but also sea-based systems, and to integrate more of those sea-based foods into the local diet of people from Maine. And then I'm also thinking about how this could be integrated elsewhere. I grew up in Maryland and the Chesapeake Bay and the crab grounds and everything that comes out of the bay and surrounding regions, how this idea could be extended for those kinds of markets as well. It's a really important issue, both on the consumer side, but also on the producer side. And I'm no expert on fisheries, and it can be a very complicated arena in terms of an industry and how it's regulated and how it works and you know all the different types of catches and ground fish versus lobster versus all of the other types of seafood. But on the consumer side, yes, I think trying to provide information for consumers so that they know that sea-based food is an important part of how we get protein in our region. It always has been that the health of the oceans is, is an extremely important part of this. But also how the seafood industry is organized and that if consumers can purchase directly, as directly as possible, from the producers, just like we have started doing in agriculture, then we have a much higher chance of providing real livelihoods to the community-based fishermen in our region. Some of my friends that work more extensively in fisheries would say that the fisheries industries, or many of them, are sort of where agriculture was 20 years ago or 15 years ago, where there was a lot of consolidation. Perhaps small farmers and family farms were getting edged out. A lot of the food was sold wholesale, perhaps through brokerages. And that's still where a lot of seafood is today, that the men and women that actually catch the fish and get the seafood are having to sell through through a broker or a dealer. And there are not as many well-developed opportunities for them to sell direct to the consumers and therefore keep more of the food dollars in their own pockets and make fishing more financially viable as a job in the world, as a way that they live in the world. So. You know, as Eric mentioned, there's this notion of of a CSF or a community supported fishery, which started in Maine a few years ago and is now spreading around the world. That not only are we encouraging consumers to subscribe to community supported agriculture shares and support their farmers directly, but now in Maine and beyond, consumers are able to essentially enter into a relationship with a fisherman or a fishing family or a fishing collaborative or a co op to say, we want our dollars to go directly to you, and in exchange for that, we will actually take delivery in season of the seafood that's available. And seafood has a season, just like produce does, and a lot of people don't know that. So there's a lot of really great opportunities to expand consumer awareness around this. And I would just add on the other side, I'm reminded by my friends who work in sort of community fisheries conversations and in the geography of Maine, there's a lot of those. But at Penobscot East Resource Center in Stonington, Maine, which probably lands more lobster than any other 
village on the coast of Maine, a lot of people who who fish and are in fisheries don't even think of their product as food, as part of the food system. So there's a shift even in the industry to move away from thinking of the product as a commodity, perhaps, and thinking of it as food to feed you know, our region and our state and our very own villages and towns. And we know that something like more than half of all humans live within 50 miles of, of the ocean. That's all around the world. So seafood could continue to be an important part of the range of, of local foods and needs to stay part of that conversation. What does the community-supported fishery process look like for a consumer? Is there a way for them to connect with the fishermen, or do they need to kind of source that out themselves? Yeah, you know, the models are still emerging, and there's lots of different models out there. And one example is a, a new CSF here in Portland, Maine, where one member of a, of a fishing family is acting as the coordinator and getting subscribers. And then there are a handful of, of fishermen in the family and related to the family behind the scenes, producing the product, harvesting from the sea, if you will. And for the consumer, they can choose to buy a share, which is one pound a week of what's in season, or a double share, which is two pounds a week. And based on that share, which is a certain number of weeks, they're, they're paying some money into the system toward that goes right into the, that fishing, fishing family's you know, revenue stream. And once a week, the consumer picks up their seafood product, fresh seafood product, at one of the designated pickup locations. So it's very similar to a CSA or a farm share in that way. If the consumer wants to meet the fishermen, I'm sure there's opportunities to do that. Some CFs, CSFs have consumers going right down to the docks to collect their product. And there's a big move afoot to allow fishermen or members of the fishing families to have a presence at farmer's markets. That actually is an interesting element in all of this is that a lot of towns and cities have kept seafood away from farmer's markets for health and safety reasons, I believe. Although there's a history probably to the dawn of human settlement and selling food of produce, land-based produce, as well as seafood being sold in public markets. So starting to see that turn around and more and more fishermen showing up at public markets, which is lovely. I would certainly love that opportunity. Most of the high-quality fish that I've ever eaten was at a sushi restaurant, largely because the chef there would drive to Baltimore every morning to pick out and select his fish. So when I go to, to the grocery store, the only place around here that I can buy fish, really, that I'm aware of, it's a matter of having to trust the person behind the counter. And, of course, you run across the food documentaries and things and find out that there's a color scale for salmon so that it can be dyed to be a, an appropriate color and all these other strange things that go on. And having that relationship with a, I wanted to say a farmer there for a second, <laughs> with the person who's catching and producing the seafood to be able to know what the different grades are, know what the different qualities are so that I'm informed as a consumer from the person I'm buying from, not only as I build that relationship, but also as I build my own knowledge of the product. Yeah. And luckily there are a lot of 
growing resources to support consumer knowledge on this. I mean, Eat Local Foods Coalition is just one local piece of the puzzle, but I would also suggest to listeners that they check out the Penobscot East Resource Center, Island Institute, and the third one I'll mention that you might be able to include in your resource list is the Northwest Atlantic Marine Alliance, or NAMA, N-A-M-A, and they're based out of Gloucester, but it's essentially, if you were to look at our food shed here in the Northeast, it's really the ocean piece that complements the land piece, and that's what the Northwest Atlantic Marine Alliance would sort of be covering. And they have some great consumer-facing materials to help us make better decisions, even if it's at the supermarket or at a restaurant. Do you have any concerns about the sustainability of sea-based foods and fisheries? I have concerns about the sustainability of land and sea-based foods, I would say, and that we need to be talking about all of them as a continuous fabric of how we, as humans, as one species in our ecosystem, choose to get the food that we need to live on this planet. And I think, you know, as a culture, we have made this distinction between land and sea-based food and a distinction between soils and oceans. And in a sense, as we know from, from our studies of permaculture, you know, all of this is very much connected. And that how we treat the land is one of the number one factors in whether food from the sea or the health of the oceans continues to be able to support us and all of the other species that are available. So so I'd say yes, I do have concerns, but I don't think my concerns are much different than my concerns for how we produce food on land. It's just a di- perhaps some different methodologies, but I think we need to elevate the conversation whenever we can that this is all a connected system and that the land affects the sea and the sea affects the land. We know from permaculture how to bring damaged land back into health and bioactivity and to create abundance and fertility. We actually know a lot of those same things for the oceans as well. And I would take a look at the work, really groundbreaking work of people like Ted Ames, who's a, a, a native Mainer and fisherman here a long-time fisherman, but also a scholar. And I think he might be the only native Mainer to have ever won a MacArthur Genius Fellowship. But he's done this wonderful research on how we might be able to, you know, identifying what has caused the decline in certain populations of sea-based food and sea species, and then how we might be able to create the conditions to bring that life back. And it's not so different from how we learn to steward the soil and steward the life of the soil. Just because we can't see it and we might not be exposed to what's going on under the surface of the ocean, that doesn't mean it isn't tremendously powerful and and something that we can influence as a keystone species in our ecosystems. I was approaching that question from a mindset of overfishing because the I'm aware of the issue of daily nitrogen load and runoff and the impact that's having on, especially around here, the Chesapeake Bay. There are concerns, the Susquehanna River watershed here in Pennsylvania, 
we're having intersexed panfish because of a lot of the medications that are winding up in our waterways. Though I'm aware of those issues, they were points of concern about our impact on the ocean that hadn't entered into my viewpoint in asking the question. <laughs> because I, I'm thinking so often about the concerns of the large fish populations in the ocean. What's happening with tuna overfishing? The collapse of, was it the cod or the mackerel in the northeast? Cod in particular, which is such a, an identifying species for the New England culture. Well, here's something to ponder, Scott, because I think this is a really big issue for people. I would argue that over-harvesting of the seas by large corporate ships or large corporate fishing entities is not dissimilar than the destruction of soils and the over-harvesting and destruction of living soils and the soil food web destruction that happens in large industrial agriculture models. So there's several levels at which we can think about this, but I think we have a lot of parallels between how food comes from the sea and how food has been coming from land. It's just that how food comes from the sea hasn't been given quite the same focus as what we can see happening in agricultural places. The way that farm families have been decimated, the numbers of them or their ability to make a living, is very similar to what's happening to fishing families up and down the coasts. And whether that's because large harvesters have practices that impact the populations of the sea-based food is an important question. But I'll tell you that all of those large fish, and again, I'm no expert, but a lot of those large fish have their spawning grounds right offshore, right offshore where the way the land is treated has a direct impact. So no small fish or unhealthy small fish, and you don't get large fish. So there's a lot more connection going on here than many of us even understand. And I can see then how, armed with that knowledge and doing more research into the impacts that we're having on those spawning grounds and on the ocean, that we could make more changes on land to reduce that impact. We certainly could, and that ranges from our agricultural and land use practices, where permaculture really can shine and really be of assistance and be of service. But it also comes down to the social permaculture side of things, and that loops us back to the conversation of if we do choose to buy and eat seafood, how do we do that? You know, Do we buy that through the supermarket if that's our only, only option? And if so, do we ask them to label the source of the seafood? What country did it come from? That's a start. Do we ask them to label their seafood with certain types of labels that ensure the seafood was caught in a sustainable way? That's another level that we can request. Or if you happen to live in a place where you can subscribe to community-supported fisheries arrangement and directly support a community-based fisherman instead of large industrial harvester of seafood and that whole associated system, then I would say choose to go direct whenever you can. These are the same sorts of requests that farmers in sustainable and organic agriculture have been making of consumers now for a good 10, 20, in some cases 30 years. And 
the fisheries piece is starting to catch up, we're hoping. And this is one of those conversations to start that process for more people, because honestly, it was something that I would have never thought of, even though I'm only about three hours from the ocean, because it's not, seafood isn't a large part of the culture, or even just thinking that, you know, I have one of the best cold water trout streams in the state, right out my back door. I can get some beautiful brook and rainbow trout, but that long conversation to connect all of those, that there's a disconnect between the culture that I exist in here and how all of that traces down to the ocean. Just like in permaculture, you can see that things like how we process seafood here near the coast, you know, what happens to the waste products. You know, if we bring in X tons of lobster and it gets processed into frozen lobster meat, for resale or wholesale use, what happens to all of the waste and the shell material? That's probably some of the best fertilizer in the history of our species growing food on land is is seafood-based waste product, right? And if we take that third permaculture ethic to heart, then you know we kind of make the word waste obsolete. And we can adopt those same ethics and design principles in how we design our food system, whether it's land-based food, sea-based food, or an integrated continuum of land, freshwater, and saltwater food. And imagine if we could start designing a food system that operates much like an ecosystem, a healthy functioning ecosystem, then the whole thing starts singing. I'm imagining that picture from like the second or third grade when I was first learning about the water cycle and the way that it's well on the land we have this and then we go and we harvest the fish from the sea and we bring those in and we process the portion of that that's food and return that to the land as fertilizer and how we can create a cycle from that process. A lot of what we learned at that age is probably pretty right on. I mean maybe some of it wasn't but I would say that's a pretty good one if we can resurface that wisdom and scale it up and down as needed into sort of regional district and community-based systems of feeding ourselves. We have a pretty good chance of being able to do that. The broader context for this, you know, I'm here in Maine, but we are one of six New England states, is that New England is now two or three years into a conversation of how it might feed itself, right? So people from all six states are getting together and actually asking some hard questions. What do we have for a land base? What could we do with sea-based food to support our population or our projected population? There's lots of assumptions built into this, but fascinating conversation because the region is saying, could we produce 50% of our own calories? And what does that mean for acreage under production? And do we produce that food the way we have since World War II? Or do we adopt some more sustainable methods or permaculture methods? What if we were to feed ourselves 80% of our caloric needs here in New England and you know, be able to import the rest from other places? What would that look like? And it's a fascinating conversation. And one that's only just starting to veer into maybe some of the ethos that we have in the permaculture community around the design principles and the design ethics. 
and I'm really excited to see how permaculture might play a role in how New England could feed itself into the future and how we play into the vision for that. Is there an organization that's spearheading that idea? Yeah, you know, it started out as just a number of delegates from each of the states getting together to talk about these things, but since then it's coalesced at, there's an office at the University of New Hampshire that operates under the name of Food Solutions New England, and they have received some financial support to be the, essentially the facilitator of this regional effort to figure this stuff out and to convene conversations and publish results and use this New England food vision, if you will, as a tool for each of the states and then nested within that each of the regions of the states to figure out how they might do food system planning into the future. So there's lots of resources and the third New England Food Summit will be happening in June here in Portland, Maine for delegates from each of the six states to further this conversation and dig into the data that we have and and see where this goes next because each state in turn is now figuring out how it will develop its own strategy for feeding itself and being healthier and withstanding shocks like peak oil or climate disruption or you know all of the things that we talk about in the permaculture world too. Do you know what started this process? Was it someone just saying, hey, we need to start taking a look at where our food's going to come from in the future? Or I think, like a lot of good efforts, this probably came from a handful of extremely targeted and well-informed conversations. And at some point, Someone will write the story of how this happened, and hopefully it has a successful ending. One of the people that I know was part of the beginning of this conversation is my dear friend, Russell Libby, who just recently passed away, but he was the executive director of Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association for 17 years and was involved in agriculture for many years beyond that and was trained as an economist. He would have been extremely versed in some of these resilience building concepts, how do we develop food systems? How do we develop, design and develop food systems that have a shot at feeding us enough healthy food indefinitely, right? This is actually a radical concept in our culture. How do we produce enough healthy food for each of us and maintain healthy ecosystems in a way that can continue indefinitely? Sounds a lot like permaculture, actually. And people like Russell were really willing to ask the hard questions, but in a way that he was stimulating conversations all over the region until, I think, enough pressure built up that people felt like they needed to convene and start turning this into something real, a touchstone for all of us around the region to work from. And another person that's kind of spearheading it is Brian Donahue out of Brandeis. And there's several people from around the region, Amanda Beal, and several people that are involved in helping to, to move this forward. I think you'll see, see more coming out of New England in terms of regional collaboration on how we feed ourselves. I'd like to connect to a bunch of that information in the resources for this episode because it sounds like a very functional way to bring about regional resilience in food systems. And... 
take it out of the village model that was coming out of like the transition movement and make it something bigger. I'm happy to share some resources and some links that people can use to explore this. I would say that something that's very timely, I don't know if your listeners will be able to participate, but every year is a conference called It Takes a Region. It happens to be coming up on February 10th, 11th, and 12th in Saratoga Springs, New York, but it happens every year. And it's organized by the Northeast Sustainable Agriculture Working Group. And it's been going on for many years, and it's probably one of the best examples of regional food systems organizing that goes beyond New England and encompasses our broader bioregion, including Pennsylvania. People do come as delegates from other parts of, of North America and indeed other parts of the world for the great content and information sharing on, on how to do food systems work that's, that's just, that's fair. There's so many elements to, to the food system work, many of which touch on permaculture and social permaculture. So it's a really important aspect of our work. The more that I read a lot of the work that's happening in, if you will, the more mainstream sustainability movements and a lot of the material that's coming out, whenever I pick it up and start reading and I go, oh, you are you want to do ecological design and sustainable food systems and all these other things, and it's my brain just keeps going, but all I need to do is contact you and bring you to permaculture, and all this comes together. It will all make sense to everyone now. The other side of that, which is very exciting, is we're seeing a lot of food system professionals, as well as architects and and urban planners, of course, coming to permaculture training and permaculture design courses. So it's not that they're necessarily wanting to go out and become permaculture designers themselves, but they want to inform their existing work and their existing programming with the ethos and the depth and the, and the unique attributes of what permaculture design has to offer. That almost excites me more than anything else is that I'm coming across people that are already out there doing mainstream work, but it turns out that a lot of their approach has already been informed by this foundation of permaculture. And the more we can do that, gosh, that's very exciting. And I don't mean that in a, in a deceitful kind of infiltration sort of way, but I think we will be successful in the permaculture world if we're able to share and disseminate the toys that permaculture has to offer, the tools, the methods, in a way that just becomes part of the fabric of how we get good things done in the world. And, you know, I think it was Dave Jackie that first said to me something like, permaculture has been pretty good at marginalizing itself for 30 years. <laughs> and I would say, in some ways, that's true. There has been an aspect maybe in permaculture where, you know, you sort of had to come and play in our sandbox and be part of our groups and our cliques and think about things in a certain way, the way that we do. And I'm being facetious and I'm generalizing, but I think the time is ripe and the time is, has an urgency to it that those of us who are working from a permaculture mindset, you know, we don't have time to force people to come play in our sandbox. We need to spread those toys all over the place, get out of the sandbox and make them available as rapidly and widely as we can and, and really adopt what I, I would say is more of like radical access to permaculture rather than just saying, well, anyone can sign up for a course if they want to. 
we need to really start designing permaculture experiences with radical access in mind. Do we design permaculture experiences for faith communities, for neighborhood associations? How do we come at this in an entirely different way with a different pedagogy so that we make ourselves obsolete as offering permaculture design courses, that this stuff becomes in a few years' time how we all think about designing our systems so that they, we, and our ecosystems can continue indefinitely. The idea of radical access and all of us doing these different myriad pieces to make this information available and to integrate it and mainstream it in each of our own ways to the rest of the world is something that in talking with people who studied with Bill Mollison in the early days of permaculture, that that seems to be an idea that got lost for a decade or two about being open to moving and changing this information to make it accessible, as you say, designing permaculture experiences for faith groups or in my local area, garden clubs, preschools, all these different components that for so long our focus has been on this idea of, well, the PDC is kind of the gateway. Take the PDC and that kind of opens the door to this wonderful world. And I wonder what we've lost as an organization by trying to get people to play in the sandbox instead of taking our toys to theirs. Yeah, and I don't think it has to be a an either or. I think the PDC can be an amazing product and can be an amazing experience. And in parallel, we need to be building the other sidewalk. And by that I mean, as we become aware that the PDC as our pedagogical model is not serving everyone it needs to be serving or not meeting the overarching goals of making this stuff available in a more widespread way. Let's not abandon it, but we need to also be articulating, I would say re-articulating our goals now that we're 30, 35 years on from the early days of Bill and David sort of synthesizing the permaculture methodology. How do we reconvene conversations that matter about what the goals are. What can permaculture do to be of service to the people, the places, the ecosystems where we live now? And based on those newly articulated goals and what we know now about the world, if we had a blank slate, how would we design permaculture experiences. I don't even want to say education because that sort of connotes what we've inherited as an educational system and the pedagogy there's not necessarily something I want to replicate. There are pieces there that are useful. How do we make permaculture of service to people and the ecosystems within which they are embedded? And how do we do that with inclusivity, radical access as part of the design, participatory design, transparency. And I really want to encourage our community to get away from scarcity thinking when it comes to permaculture education. And when I say that, I mean, well, this is my territory and you can't come teach permaculture here or you can't come do permaculture design here. Luckily in Maine and much of the Northeast, we have a really collaborative sharing ethos, which I think will serve us well as we redesign what permaculture can do for the world. 
But we have an ethos here, which is one of if we do our jobs right as permaculturists, there is more than enough work for absolutely every single person who wants to get involved. I think that's adopting an abundance approach rather than a scarcity approach, even to how we practice permaculture in the world. And ever so quickly, one example is we, we ran an advanced permaculture design course here a little while ago. And to, to really help people get more mentored, live design experience with a client, but in a safe way. And one of the PDC students, an older man, approached me and said, I'm really surprised that you're offering this advanced course. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, you're training up all your own competitors. And I have to admit, I was speechless because even though his heart was in the right place, he was still coming from this very 20th century scarcity-based thinking even in applying permaculture to the world. So that type of thinking for me, Scott, has an expiration date on it. We don't have time for that sort of thinking. And so radical access and, and rapid sharing and dissemination, dissemination of what permaculture has to offer is, is really at the heart and soul of everything I do, whether I'm calling it permaculture or I'm trying to bring permaculture thinking and permaculture ethics and principles to the broader food system work in which I'm involved. I've had quite a few conversations about scarcity versus abundance thinking. And part of that is in the traditional business world. I know people who are involved in publishing and also software. And many of them, as these more traditional companies come online, they're still acting as if their market is limited, as if they don't have really unlimited copies of the material that they have. So the way that pricing models and access to these different pieces work still follow these old principles that don't really work necessarily in an information or a digital age. And I can say as though I'll be releasing the episode before this interview, I've been putting together the idea of doing an online permaculture design course. And there was some conversation with some other people about, well, don't you think that you're creating competition in the marketplace by doing that or that you're going to be competing with other people? And it's like one of the core ideas in the designer's manual is that it's about cooperation, not competition. So the more people who I talk to who are already offering these products or even helping people who offer something like that in the future, to me, I'm not creating competitors. I'm creating colleagues. That's exactly right. and. Honestly, even though I grew up here in New England, I had the good luck to be able to go to graduate school at the Evergreen State College in Washington. For the greeners who listen to this, they'll appreciate the fact that Evergreen had this thing called a DTF, or a Disappearing Task Force. And when you had to make something happen, you know, you would come together as a group, you'd make it happen, but you would design your own demise into the process, you know. Like, we're not creating a committee that will live ad nauseum with meeting after meeting. And in a sense, you know, permaculture, if it's true to its origins and true to its ethics and principles, then it should be evolving itself all the time and re-envisioning what it could be and what it could do and how it can best be of service. If it sticks to the canon of the black book, and if it's not in the black book, it's not permaculture, then it's already put a nail in its coffin, honestly. 
you know, I have all the greatest respect and honor for the amazing work of the elders in our permaculture community. And at the same time, we are experiencing an explosion in sharing of information and in creating shareable societies and gift societies and decentralizing systems of everything, in fairness. I think we need to be creating loads of models that are much more like mycelium than they are like the 20th century hierarchical centralized models where maybe one set of people maybe even voted for or maybe self-identified people get to say what's permaculture and what's not or what's good permaculture and what's not. I mean, I think we need to respond to ideas like your idea of an online permaculture design course. We need to respond to new ideas from a place of yes rather than a place of no, right? And not that you won't have hiccups with your idea or there might not be some good feedback or criticisms that make it a better product, but those of us in the community need to have enough personal fortitude and faith in the process that we can say yes to all the good new ideas and new practitioners and new approaches. And maybe they won't all succeed. But when we start from a place of no, or don't you think this is a bad idea because, or here's why it won't work, then we are living scarcity-based thinking, which at its heart is fear-based thinking. And, you know, I know we have limited time, but I will say that I got back involved in permaculture after selling a software business and realizing that with peak oil and climate change, there were a lot of fear-based responses, doom and gloom, fear-based, buy 40 acres and stockpile the ammunition sort of responses. And, and in my heart of hearts, I knew that we needed to model and build the opposite. If we had any chance to create a positive future, at least in some places, maybe not every place, that we needed to get out there and build living, breathing examples of what's possible and not those scarcity, fear-based, and no-based responses to new ideas and new ways of doing things. So I would applaud any and all creative efforts to get this stuff out there, especially those that give access to folks who traditionally can't get access to permaculture tools and experiences because of, you know, socioeconomic background or where they live or whatever it may be. So, you know, the time is right and we don't have any time to mess around with scarcity-based, fear-based thinking at this point. I think that's a great message and would be a wonderful place to end this interview, but I would like to provide an opportunity. Is there anything else that you would like to add to this conversation for the listeners about your work or anything else? I would say that for all the new people, especially coming into permaculture, into learning about permaculture or practicing permaculture in some capacity, that they really think broadly and widely about how they want to be in the world and make their living in the world, that they may choose to do permaculture design and implementations or maybe even teaching but even taking what they have of permaculture into other areas of work, whether it's working in schools or educational systems, energy systems, food systems planning, universities, even in businesses, 
There's so many ways to try to adapt the gold nuggets that are to be found within permaculture to all of these other ways of being in the world and making a living in the world. So I would encourage people to really stretch themselves beyond just the models that we've received in the first 35 years of permaculture being on this planet and get as creative as possible in how we can adapt the good aspects of permaculture into all of the other work that needs to happen in the world. I laugh at myself for saying this, but whether they're a butcher, a baker, or a candlestick maker, they can bring permaculture into their lives. <laughs> That's absolutely true. And I, act, and I do know a bunch of people that are working in the business community that are trying to develop business models based on permaculture ethics and principles. And that's probably an entirely different podcast with other people who are even more qualified to talk about it. But I would really say that the sky's the limit. And there are so many ways to go with this. There's nothing but good and nothing but excitement to be had by people who are choosing to, to bring this into their lives. For all the times that we're confronted with messages of doom and gloom and fear and dark prospects for the future, Lisa, thank you for joining me and helping to turn some of that conversation towards a more positive, uplifting, abundant direction. My pleasure, Scott. Anytime. That ends the time with Lisa Fernandez. Unlike other recent interviews, I don't have any notes for this one. I like where we brought everything to a close at the end, and I'd rather you take the time to consider how a life focused on cooperation and abundance can change your worldview and the work that you do. If you have any questions for me, email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com or call 717-827-6266. My next guest is Bill Summers of the Permaculture Credit Union, and we'll be talking about that operation and how it differs from other credit unions and banks. And if I can keep things on track, more on financial permaculture. I'm interested in this conversation because Bill was a banker working in the world of finance long before coming to permaculture. Until the next time, take care of the earth, yourself, and each other. <laughs>